everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word on the Street, an OML and RC podcast. I am Anissa. I am your lovely host, majority of the time. <laughs> um, but I am joined today with their SIE. Grace, would you like to share a little bit about yourself before I would we kick love off? To. So, hey everyone, my name is Grace Evans. I use she, her pronouns, and I am an SIE with the Office for Multicultural Learning. I am also a third year political science and ethnic studies student, and I'm really excited for today's discussion. Excitement is a is a good choice of word, but also because it's a very relevant topic. Yes. Um, especially right now, given the news that we heard Monday night and continued to hear Tuesday morning. Um, why don't we just kick it off? And the, today's episode is going to be about reproductive justice. And mm -hmm. to start off, we're going to actually be talking about uh, Roe v. Wade. And I'm going to go ahead and give it to you, Grace, if yeah. you want to give more information about what's going on, what it is, and any concerns. Absolutely. So on Monday night, the world was shocked by some news leaked by Politico, a news organization, and Politico leaked a 98-page draft opinion by Supreme Court Justice um, Alito, in which he detailed that the court plans to overturn Roe. And this was a draft opinion of the majority of the court. The court is a 6-3 conservative to liberal lean right now. And so that news was released on Monday night. And like I said, it shocked the world because it's the draft opinion indicated the Supreme Court plans to, and had voted to already in February, overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the law of the land and a constitutionally protected right to abortion. That's what Roe v. Wade is, that constitutionally protected right. And so if Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court, what that means is that it's now going to be left to states to decide if they want to uphold or reverse the right to an abortion. Scary stuff. On Tuesday morning, we learned that the Supreme Court confirmed the validity of the leak um, because there were questions on Monday night as to the validity. Is that real? Um, nothing has ever been leaked by the Supreme Court before for a bit of context. And so people were really confused. And they confirmed on Tuesday morning that it is in fact real. Um, so things got a little bit scarier. And we saw Monday night people putting up barricades around the Supreme Court. People mm -hmm. immediately went there to protest. People have been protesting there Tuesday, Wednesday, today is Thursday. Um, so we've seen protests. There's a demonstration happening at SCU this afternoon called Hands Off Row. And people are reacting to this. And so this episode is going to detail reactions to Roe v. Wade from both Anissa and I and the recent news, but also reactions related to reproductive justice historically from SCU students. And we're going to share a few podcast episodes created by a class a bit later on in the episode. Um, but that's a little bit about the news and what's been happening. I'm going to let Anissa define reproductive justice, this term that we've been using, and what that means for us. Mm -hmm. So to go back before I actually uh, go ahead and define reproductive justice, this episode actually uh, was planned to already be about reproductive justice um, because of some work that I did last quarter. Uh, during the winter quarter, I worked closely with Dr. Miranda's Anthropology uh, 135 class to create podcast segments regarding different issues centering around gender. Two of those segments were shared with us uh, and we got to use them how we decided. And those two topics were centered around maternity leave in California and obcentric violence. 
So because these segments are short, they're seven minutes long, we, are, uh, we as the host are going to listen to them, reacting to that information and build upon them through queer and BIPOC lenses, as well as relate them to what we're still learning about and protesting and organizing about recent leaked draft. Mm -hmm. um, so what is reproductive justice? Uh, this is a quote from In Our Own Voice, Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. Reproductive justice means that hu means the human right to control our sexuality, our gender, our work, and our reproduction. That right is only achieved when all individuals have complete economic, social, and political power and resources to make healthy decisions about our bodies, our families, and our communities in all areas of our lives. Mm. So, Grace? Incredibly important. Where do we go? <laughs> what are we talking about? Reproductive justice is so important. And like I said, we want to highlight some student voices that have talked about it, starting with my own <laughs> for my Ethnic Studies 165 Ethnic Studies senior capstone. Um, I'm a junior, but I took this class this year. And what I did was I talked about Black students' experiences with the COVID-19 vaccine, which you're like, how is that relevant to reproductive justice and Roe v. Wade? But in my literature review, one of the schools of thought I had was hesitancy. And I'm going to read that paragraph because it talks a bit about the experimentation on women's bodies, specifically Black women's bodies. And we can extrapolate that to the broader conversation about what it means to be a person of color and a queer person in the United States and be dealing with issues like reproductive justice. So this is a quote from the literature review of my ethnic studies capstone. I'm just going to read that paragraph on hesitancy. So, America's healthcare systems have failed the country's Black citizens. For centuries, the belief that Black people are biologically different than white people has led to health-related horrors. For example, J. Marion Sims, the father of modern gynecology, developed his gynecological techniques by experimenting on enslaved women. So, what does that mean? It means that the foundations of modern gynecology are based on a white man's exploitative experiments a white man's exploitation of black women, exploitation that is an example of both gendered violence and racialized violence. And because the foundations of modern gynecology are based on a white man's exploitative experiments, a white man's exploitation of black women, it is difficult for black women and black people to trust America's healthcare systems. But J. Marion Sims is not the only example of America's health-related horrors. The Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, the Tuskegee study, a 40-year study by the U.S. Public Health Service involved hundreds of Black men diagnosed with syphilis who were observed, not treated, for their syphilis. Additionally, because the Black men of the Tuskegee study were intentionally deceived by the U.S. Public Health Service, in fact, they believed they were being treated, not observed, for their syphilis, the Tuskegee study is often cited as an example of state-sponsored racism and of state-sponsored violence. In a study exploring racial differences in the relationship between knowledge of the Tuskegee study and medical mistrust, Brandon et al. found that while there are no significant racial differences with regard to knowledge of the Tuskegee study, there are significant racial differences with regard to medical mistrust. Put another way, trust varies by race, but it is unlikely that the Tuskegee study is a primary reason for the widespread medical mistrust of Black Americans. So that paragraph touches on someone who is an important name in reproductive justice conversations, J. Marion Sims. And J. Marion Sims, like I read, is considered to be the father of modern gynecology. 
but he developed his techniques by experimenting on enslaved women, obviously without their consent, mm -hmm. obviously without pain medication or anything like that. And that's horrible. And it leads into reproductive justice. And I want to talk a little bit in addition to the definition about the origins of reproductive justice. So the reproductive justice movement was started, I believe, in the 90s by women of color. And it was a response to the reproductive rights movement, which was a movement started by white women earlier in the 20th century. And the reproductive rights movement, again, started by white women, was surrounded issues like abortion and birth control, but it left out women of color from the conversation. They were intentionally excluded, similar to how women of color were intentionally excluded from voting rights and the voting rights movement of white women. So reproductive justice is largely associated with women of color because it was started by them. And it offers us a more intersectional framework for understanding cases like Roe v. Wade and their impacts on both women of color, queer women of color, people with uteruses, queer people with uteruses everywhere. Um, reproductive justice, like I said, gives us that intersectional lens with which to look at that. Thank you. And also beautifully put, Grace. And it's true. That is why this podcast episode is named Reproductive Justice, because we want to look at it from the lens of queer and BIPOC folk who have a lot of the movements and social justice aspects that we have seen replenish and continue to fight for are these uh, these groups of people, but continue to be left out of conversations because racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, anything that you can imagine to continue to lower the voices that have spoken up for the majority of all yeah. rather than just themselves. Absolutely. It's so upsetting. Mm -hmm. So not to keep going downward, but this is <laughs> kind of where the episode is going to go today. Yeah. It's not going to be really fun. We're not going to be making jokes very often unless it triggers my trauma, which is how <laughs> I deal with trauma. Hello, therapist, if you're listening. <laughs> but um, to kick it off, because this is an episode in collaboration with other SCU, SCU students, we're going to be listening to uh, a podcast segment uh, delivered by Dr. Miranda's class from this last quarter, uh, continuing about uh, the use of Black bodies and the use of Black individuals to funnel medication, funnel uh, research, and use and abuse and violence that is continuously thrown out of there. Mm -hmm. So now I am going to play that. Listening to uh, the podcast segment delivered about obcentric violence, we are going to listen to the information that they brought and then also comment and add to it as well. Hi guys, this is Lana, Lily, Larissa, and Anne, and we're gonna talk to you today about medical mispractices in obstetrics during slavery. Did you guys know that the United States currently ranks last among industrialized countries in maternal mortality rates, even though they spend about twice as much or more per person on healthcare compared to other industrialized nations? That's definitely surprising. I would have suspected that the U.S. would rank much higher given that we spend the most on healthcare compared to other countries. 
In the US, we continue to see large disparities in maternal mortality, health outcomes between black and white women. Well, how large is the disparity? Huge. Black women have pregnancy-related mortality rates that are at least two to three times higher, respectively, compared to the rate for white women. Let's talk about this and then delve into history of medical racism in obstetrics and its connection to slavery. What are your perspectives on why these health outcomes persist among black women? Well, a lot of it has to do with the perceptions and stereotypes surrounding black women that began during slavery. Would anyone like to tell us more about that? Yeah, I can start. So one of the most pre prevalent stereotypes was the hypersexualization of black women, which stemmed from the economic necessity of producing more black bodies. Hypersexualizing black women and their reproduction was a way to preserve slavery and its economic benefits. Research by Dorothy E. Roberts discusses the hypersexualization of black motherhood in the U.S. and that black mothers were often seen as undeserving of motherhood. This belief, and among other beliefs that stereotype black women as sexually promiscuous, persists to both devalue and deny reproductive freedom to black mothers. Absolutely, and I think that Deirdre Cooper Owens explains the historical context of obstetric racism really well in her book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and American Gynecology. She starts with explaining the ideas of scientific racism created by whiteness that mean that black people were seen as different and inferior to white people in some way. But this also tried to justify the exploitation of enslaved peoples to advance medical practices. She writes that enslaved women were ideal subjects for experimentation since doctors regarded them as biologically inferior to white women, but as having a high tolerance for pain. Here, she introduces the next stereotype that influences obstetric medicine today. The idea that black women have a higher pain tolerance and need less medicine than their white counterparts. Yes, exactly. Owens also expands on how these stereotypes affected medicine in the antebellum period, especially obstetric medicine. She coined this term medical superbodies and used this term to explain how black women stood at the crossroads of being a universal norm for healing, and yet their bodies still held these racialized frictions, like having a higher pain tolerance, being intellectually inferior, and being hypersexualized. In Owen's book, she also talks about how these intersections denied black women a sense of humanity, but also saw them as ideal research subjects for medical experimentation. Ultimately, black women were viewed as valuable because they could reproduce and plantation owners wanted to protect them because of their economic value in their reproduction, resulting in doctors trying to solve their sicknesses through experimentation and violence. I think it's strange to look at how black women were seen as both valuable and invaluable, especially after the transatlantic slave trade became illegal. I mean, black women were enslaved, but they were also encouraged to reproduce. Yes, because again, it was economically beneficial. Roberts also talks about how slave owners had a dual interest in seeing black women as a worker and a childbearer. Enslaved black women experienced violence and terror, but their reproduction which was seen as economically valuable, was always protected, like Lily mentioned. For example, Roberts discusses this paradox in the example of slave owners who forced black mothers to lie down while they were being whipped to simultaneously protect the fetus and abuse the mother. So, how else have medical stakeholders in U.S. history contributed to the idea of black women having these medical superbodies discussed earlier? There was a doctor named Francois-Marie Prevost who was actually considered by some to be the father of the cesarean section, yet it's not often talked about how he pioneered the surgery through experimentation on black women. He performed 30 of 37 experimental c-sections on enslaved women in 1830. 
we can actually still see the legacy of his violence against black women today in the numbers of C-sections being performed. The World Health Organization has stated that the healthy rate for C-sections is 10 to 15%, but the rate of C-sections on African-American women is at about 36.8%. So it looks like we can really see that this history of obstetric violence has created immense and structural distrust within the black community and the need for medical doctors and medical institutions to be more sensitive to personal and cultural concerns. Definitely. Interestingly, the famous and well-respected father of gynecology, Dr. J. Marion Sims, is another perfect example of how black women slaves were manipulated at the expense of furthering the advancement of medical knowledge and practice. In the 19th century, Dr. J. Marion Sims performed ethically unacceptable human experiments on powerless, unconsenting black enslaved women. Specifically, he conducted numerous fistula procedures on these women, and three of these women he performed numerous procedures on without anesthesia. To understand this a little more, what are fistulas? Fistulas develop during prolonged obstructed labor when the fetus will not fit through the birth canal. As the uterus tries to force the fetus through the birth canal, the fetus wedges more and more tightly to the maternal pelvis until it can no longer be moved. The fetus dies from oxygen supply being cut off, and if the mother lives through this tragic event, she is prone to developing numerous complications. So, on top of already experiencing stillborn births and severe pain from these fistulas, enslaved black women were now being experimented on without anesthesia? Yes, and this relates back to what Lana was saying earlier about harmful stereotypes surrounding black women. In her essay, Medical Violence, Obstetric Racism, and the Limits of in Informed Consent for Black Women, Colleen Campbell explains how Sims exploited the racist stereotype that black women don't feel pain in the way white women do when he decided to operate on these black women without anesthesia. She even further explains how Sims described the black women he experimented on as being happy and willing in order to capitalize on racist tropes and legitimize his experiments. What is even more horrifying is that even though anesthesia was available during the time he was developing the surgery on black women, he only used it when he performed the surgery on white women years later. If this is supposed to be the father of gynecology, no wonder we still see large disparities in health outcomes, especially around the pregnancies of black women. To end this podcast, we hope that this was helpful for our listeners to recognize that race, although a social construct, has been erroneously believed to explain biological differences, which serve to legitimize the harmful exploitation and experimentation of enslaved black women in gynecology and obstetrics. Considering the historical foundations of slavery and obstetric racism can help us understand the social implications of these aspects today and how we can move forward to create equality in our societies and medical institutions. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you guys learned something interesting today. Righty, I want to touch on something that was brought up at the end of that podcast episode about Dr. J. Marion Sims, who we talked about a bit earlier, and how he did not use anesthesia when experimenting on black women, but years later did use anesthesia when experimenting on white women, even though anesthesia was available for both <laughs> groups of women at the same time. Um, and when I look at that and when I hear that example, it's not surprising to me that there was a need that Black women and women of color saw a need for another movement, the reproductive justice movement, as opposed to the reproductive rights movement. 
because we have now a historical example of the differences in treatment of black women and white women. And it's no shock to me why white women would have had a movement that was for them and why black women and other women of color felt the need to create a movement that was for them and that prioritized their lived experiences, lived experiences which, as that would, as were discussed in that episode, are horrific, horrific lived experiences. Um, and I can't help but think of Serena Williams, probably the best tennis player in the world, the best female tennis player in the world. Mm-hmm. She's incredible. And she went in to have her child and she was in an insane amount of pain. And she communicated that to the doctors and nurses and her pain wasn't believed. And this is Serena Williams. And you you see people in the news say, oh, you know, if you have money, you have access to the best of the best care, regardless of race, regardless of gender identity. But Serena Williams is someone who, although she identifies as female and she has a lot of money, we still see that in her case, her pain wasn't believed. And eventually her pain was so bad that they finally started to believe her and she had had some severe complications with birth. And luckily she's still here today, but had her pain gone not believed even further, um, she may not be here today. And that's really scary to think about. Um, And that's someone, like I said, with access to the best of the best care who was denied access to care because her pain wasn't believed, which is that goes back to the historical idea that black women have a higher pain intolerance. an historically very harmful idea. Yeah, that in everything that you said, like once again, you just have a very careful and beautiful way to put things and you're yeah. very intelligent, <laughs> which of course, but um, in addition to everything that we learned from that podcast and everything that we've been talking about today, just hearing that again reminds me of a class that I took at my undergraduate uh, I went to CSUMB. I took uh, global gender studies there. Mm. One of my favorite classes. It was. It got like shut down halfway through because it was the year that COVID started. Oh. Uh, but when we were talking about that, I remember watching a video um, going back to reproductive justice and what's going on today of uh, people picketing outside of a Planned Parenthood as a majority of uh, Latina or Latina women and um, Black women go into the clinic to discuss what, whether it was abortion or any other thing that they were looking for resources for. Uh, just a bunch of group of white men standing outside with signs that like, uh, we love black babies, we don't want them killed. Oh, it, gosh. it reminds me of, because they're operating on that same ideal as before, where they were just reproducing black children to enslave them and to use them and to... Uh, like that's where that mindset comes from and it just finally clicked for me right now like that's yeah how much it is ingrained in these people who claim to be pro-life you are not pro-life you're Mm anti-choice it has nothing to do with you caring about the individual otherwise you would want access to birth control you would want Mm -hmm. access to accurate sex education Mm -hmm. you would want funding for these people so that they don't have to go through these because it's not something that's i'm getting very like go for it uh it is not something it is not a decision that is taken lightly it is Mm -hmm. someone i remember if i can find this video i will link it because it was a very very powerful uh documentary that they did and 
these women are going in they're like i have three children already i cannot afford to feed a fourth child i don't have the resources i don't have anybody helping me and then there's just these disgusting people outside throwing garbage spitting at them saying we care about black babies more than we do what the does that mean how pent up and like how ingrained it is it goes back to all these things and these ideals where where do you, where does this thought come from? It's coming from yeah. enslaved people's yeah. lived experiences that you're still profiting and perpetuating. Yeah, I appreciate your anger, Vanessa. And I'll add that they love black babies, <sighs> but they do not love black children, and they certainly do not love black adults. No, and that's what's really frustrating to me about it all. Mm-hmm. And it gets my blood boiling. <laughs> it does. So like I said, I appreciate your anger. And it's ridiculous. One of my professors in race and religion three here at SC, the course I'm taking right now, she told us in reaction to the recent news about Roe v. Wade that data shows that people that are pro-choice and pro-life get abortions at the same rate. Yes. The same rate. So the same people that are acting and they're standing outside of Planned Parenthoods with signs and they're picketing and protesting are the same people who are getting abortions at the same rate of the people that are protesting. And oftentimes they will demand differential treatment. They'll demand that they get let in the back door of abortion clinics after they're protesting and picketing. And it's ridiculous to me. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter. I'm pulling up... um... A post that Trevor Noah posted the other day. So I, I, showed, I, I showed you that the other mm-hmm. day. Um, maybe it's not working. Find it. Trevor Noah. I highly recommend his coverage of what's been going on this week. Um, he's had some great coverage and great YouTube videos about it. So I highly recommend checking those out. So going back to your point of that of the same rates of it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a post on Tuesday morning that was posted. Uh, this is from his interview with uh, Lindy West uh, that states, Detro- anti-choice people are not trying to stop abortion. They're trying to legislate who can and cannot have abortions because conservative politicians, their wives and mistresses and, mistresses and daughters are always going to be able to get an abortion somewhere. All criminalizing abortion will do is keep people trapped in poverty for generations. That's the goal. And if it wasn't the goal, then why would they spend their time and money on comprehensive sex education, free birth control, and free uh, contraception, among all of the other things that are ingrained with uh, reproductive justice? That's a powerful quote. And speaking of who can and can't have abortions, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that while We've been using language such as women to describe people who get abortions. Variety of groups can get abortions, including transgender men and non-binary peoples. And so we want to highlight the fact that you don't have to identify as a woman to get an abortion. And we want to be intentional moving forward about our language with Mm -hmm. regard to who can and can't have abortions. Um, And you may hear us say women because that's kind of the default, but we are trying to be intentional in our language and saying for example, women and people with uteruses, because anyone with a uterus can experience pregnancy and can get an abortion. Yes, exactly. And the threat of removing Roe v. Wade is not just an issue like for women or for uh, BIPOC communities. Uh, 
this intersectionality, which is what our office thrives on, mm -hmm. is teaching people the intersectionality and to consider the intersectionalities of an individual. Mm -hmm. um, the removal of this is not just about the removal of abortion. It is a removal of uh, access to health care, which trans individuals are, and non-binary individuals are already struggling heavily. Yeah. This will just, even though I think the uh, justices have released this is solely about abortion, it's not. It's not. It's not. Roe v. Wade, at its core, is about the right to privacy. If you read the text of Roe v. Wade, which was a decision, decision sorry, made in the early 1970s, you see that Roe v. Wade is about the right to privacy. Yes, it does detail abortion rights, but at its core, it's about the right to privacy. And what else is privacy? Transgender health care and queer health care so many aspects of the right to privacy, including gay marriage and interracial marriage, that can be attacked by states that will choose to overturn Roe v. Wade if given the opportunity to do so. So when we think about intersectionality, we have to think about how intersectional Roe itself is, being that it is the right to privacy. Um, because as soon as the right to privacy is removed, all hell breaks loose. And that's why this is so scary for people that aren't women. It's scary for everybody as it should be um, because you see other rights that can now be attacked as well. Exactly. Uh, now we're gonna go ahead and listen to a little bit of uh, the other segment that was delivered to us. We're gonna narrow it down just to keep it more uh, in the loop of what we're talking about today and especially with Roe v. Wade decision that was leaked. Um, so we're gonna go ahead and do that now. So this uh, episode, I believe I stated it earlier, but this is specifically about maternity leave in California, um, what that means. And also we can go on and expand a little bit later, uh, maternity and paternity uh, leave in California specifically, and how that is also another aspect of reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. I like everyone's music. Hi, this is Natalia. This is Shay. This is Julia. And Julia. And we would like to discuss maternity leave. Imagine this scenario. You are a very career-driven woman, and you also receive the exciting news that you are pregnant. When it comes time to give birth and begin motherhood, which can be a happy and stressful time, you also have both financial and societal pressure pushing you to return to work and quickly. So what exactly is maternity leave? Maternity leave is a time for the birth giver to bond with their baby and recover from birthing before returning to their job. This period of time, which is a maximum 12 weeks by federal law in the United States, is often unpaid yet has job protection. Wow, so across the United States, you aren't guaranteed financial compensation during this time period? Yes, you only have your job waiting for you for 12 weeks, but financially, employers do not have a responsibility to pay you. Now, has this always been true, or has this been changed? No, in 1993, Congress passed the Family and Medical Leave Act, otherwise known as FMLA, that found that, due to the nature of the roles of men and women in our society, the primary responsibility for family caretaking often falls on women, and such responsibility affects the working lives of women more than it affects the working lives of men. And employment standards that apply to one gender only have serious potential for encouraging employers to discriminate against employees and applicants from employment that are who are of that gender. 
From this thinking came the Family and Medical Leave Act that provides employees with 12 weeks of unpaid job protective leave per year. This act applies to the public agencies, schools, and large companies. The act stated that an eligible person is someone who has worked for a company for 12 months and logged 1,250 hours working there. And this said eligible employee is entitled to 12 total work weeks of leave if requested for one of the following reasons the birth of a son or daughter, adoption of a child, to care for a spouse, child or parent with a serious health condition or because of personal serious health reasons. None of these require the leave to be paid, however. Is the okay, so we're going to stop that podcast there um, because Anissa and I are currently experiencing some reactions, not to the students who created the podcast, they did a wonderful job, but to one of the quotes discussed, and that was that in California, you can experience and have paid maternity leave if you are having, if you're experiencing the birth of a son or daughter. So right there, they're not using, the language of the law is not inclusive. And we see this across the United States with reproductive justice related laws. The language, similar to what we were talking about earlier with inclusive language, the language of the law is not inclusive. And that's a shame. Um, you can have a son and daughter, but you can also have a non-binary child, and it's important to acknowledge that the binary doesn't and shouldn't exist because it is a social construct. (laughs) But yes, in kind of concluding this podcast episode, one of the things we want to highlight is that the people who claim to be pro-life are in fact anti-choice, and they are anti-choice because if they were truly pro-life they would be advocates for maternity paternity leave which other countries have called paid family leave because paid family leave is a more inclusive term than maternity or paternity and again it's important to use inclusive language where we can but i want to highlight that countries like canada and countries throughout europe have long paid family leave periods i'm talking a year or more of paid family leave. The United States is the only industrialized nation in the world without sufficient paid family leave. That's crazy. If folks were truly pro-life, they would also be in favor of child tax credits. They're not. They would be in favor of school and education programs. Mm -hmm. They would be in favor of Things like stimulus checks that supported families during pandemics. But the party that claims to be pro-life is also the party that hates the idea of a government handout. And I want to stress that things like child credits and paid family leave are not government handouts. They are rights. Rights that should be enshrined in our Constitution and aren't, which is why it's left to the Supreme Court to decide them. And that sucks. (laughs) Yes. Uh, like we said, this is not this is not a fun episode, and this is not a fun thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that we bring up on here is not fun to talk about because we need to push for more education, more uh, just knowledge about these subjects. Especially if you don't realize them, or you just have never been grown up around them, or even consider them a day for your life. Um. But also because this podcast is only so many minutes or hours long, we can't fit in the entire uh, spectrum of what is going on with Roe v. Wade right now. What is reproductive justice? 
which is why we are inviting you to come and join us to talk about uh, these issues in our next 3D, our digital difficult dialogue. And Grace, since you are hosting uh, that along with Mahek, another SIE, um, do you want to share a little bit more about what uh, is going to happen, what time it is? Just promote it a little bit. Go ahead. Heck yeah. So our upcoming 3D, our digital difficult dialogue, as Anissa introduced for us, is happening next Tuesday, May 10th at 6 p.m. via Zoom, as the name digital would suggest. It's going to be from 6 to 7.30, and the title of the 3D is Roe versus Wade, Let's Talk About It. And that's what we want to do. We want this space to be a space where people feel comfortable and brave enough to talk about Roe v. Wade, because like Anissa and I have been doing, it's tough to talk about. And we're having a difficult conversation right now. And we're going to continue that difficult conversation at the 3D. If that's something you're interested in, it's open to the entire SCU community. And we'd love to have you there and sharing your opinions. We're going to go over, like we did at the beginning of this episode, what the Roe v. Wade draft decision leave means for you, what it means for your peers and your fellow Americans, your fellow citizens of the world, because this is going to impact people on a large scale. And so we'd love to have you there. You get to listen to us, learn from us, and then we all get to learn from one another because at the core of the 3Ds are the discussion parts. So we'd love to have you there. Again, that's going to be May 10th, Tuesday at 6 p.m. via Zoom. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you again also for joining me today and talking about this to an extent. Thank you for listening uh, everybody and hopefully also getting very passionate about these things because it is worthy of passion and worthy of justice um thank you again for listening and have a great rest of your day remember to join us for the 3d and any other events that we put on uh have a great rest of your day bye thank you everyone